0: Well, good morning. It's good to see you. If you have a Bible, go ahead and find Esther chapter 6. This morning, you see on the screen that the title of the message is The Pivot Point. We have reached the middle point of the story in the book of Esther. It is on this text, this story, this event that we're going to read about, where everything starts to shift in huge ways. There's a, a literary device that you may have learned in uh, an English class, but I would guess probably not. And uh, you need to know what it is uh, for, this, for the sake of understanding this book. So um, we, if you were with us a couple of years ago, uh, we went through the Gospel of Mark on Wednesday nights. And in the Gospel of Mark, we have over and over and over again these things called uh, Markin' sandwiches, right? So uh, there would be a story, and another story that had very similar themes or very similar events taking place. And then in between those two stories, there was a third story uh, that was kind of uh, more important. It it gave uh, meaning to those other two stories, so it kind of made this little point. And that middle section was the pivot point. It was the important story that was bracketed by those two things. That Mark and Sandwich is a small version of what we call a chiasm. So... You see on the screen, what is a chiasm? So it's a, it's a kind of parallelism. Uh, again, this is a little bit in the weeds for this morning, so it's okay. we think about reading and studying the Bible like we've been doing on Wednesday nights in our equipping groups. So we want to try to look out for things like this. So chiasms or chiastic parallelisms uh, bracket stories or events that have similar meanings or similar uh, details and they point towards something in the middle. That middle section is the pivot point, and that's where we want to focus all of our attention. Right. So let me just give you an example of where we are. In the whole story of Esther, there is one giant chiastic parallelism. There's one giant chiasm taking place. So we learned about the introduction in chapter 1, verse 1, the extent of Ahasuerus' kingdom. We learned that there were two banquets held by the king, Then number three, we saw that Esther was taken to the king, but concealed her identity. Then number four, there was a description of Haman's nature, right? He was the enemy of the Jews. Then number five, we saw the casting of lots, and a war was declared against the people of God. Number six, the king gave his ring and his authority to Haman. Haman sent letters. Number seven, Esther has a feast. Haman is in good spirits. Number seven, Haman consults with his associates and their optimism. We read just about that last week in chapter five. Today, we are going to read about the king giving honor to a servant. And everything I just read to you, those seven points, are going to, or those eight points rather, um, are going to unravel. So On one side of the king giving honor to the servant was Haman being consulted by some advisors. What happens immediately after the king honors a servant? Haman goes and gets consulted by his advisors. Right before the the consultation, Esther has a feast. What happens after that second consultation? Esther has a feast. So you see what I'm saying? There's this parallelism that exists and all of it is pointing forward to what we're going to read today. We need to know that because we need to see that here is where the pivot takes place. Here's where the turn takes place. In the first half of the book, the people of God look like they are doomed. God's presence is absent. He's not mentioned. It doesn't seem like anything good can come from this for God's people. But after this pivot point, when we see this huge reversal take place, as things unfold and unravel, the tide is turned for the people of God and although he is not explicitly mentioned, his providence is clearly seen. So we're going to witness the, the beginning of the undoing of all the dangers for the people of God and Esther. We're going to see God's deliverance begin to take place. We're going to see his invisible hand of providence. Now, I, I just said we're going to see his invisible hand. And you may think, well, that's not possible. And it's not. But just like the wind blowing through the trees, when we see the trees bend, we know that the wind is there. And in the same way, when we witness all of these events take place, we may not be able to see God's hand of providence, but we see its effects and we know for certain that it's there. So let's start in Esther chapter 6, starting in verse 1. On that night, the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable memorable deeds, the Chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Big Thana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. Let's pray before we go any further. O oh Lord, we thank you, thank you, thank you for your great grace that we've been gathered here today to uh, open your book, to read your Word, to be transformed by it. Uh, Lord, we we believe that the Word has power. And Lord, when you speak, things happen. And so God, when we read your Word and study your Word, your Spirit is using that to transform us. So I pray that we might uh, behold your truth and be transformed by your power this morning. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so three points for this morning as we think about Esther chapter 6. First, we see, if you're taking notes, uh, we find a sleepless king. A sleepless king. You know, we've been reading about all of this planning and fasting and surely implied praying. We've, we've read about clever reeling in and and shrewd strategy by Esther. We've been reading about all of this pleading and lamenting by Mordecai and the people of God all around the Persian Empire. We've been reading about all this fury and anger and preparation and strategy to strike from Haman to destroy God's people. But what turns the tide and what unravels the world empire and rescues the people of God? The king can't sleep. He just can't sleep. That's it. Something so seemingly insignificant is actually the thing that God will use to undo the dangers that have befallen his people. So as a way to help the king go to sleep, he calls for his attendants to read to him the book of memorable deeds, the Chronicles. As, and as they were read to him, he would be kind of lulled off to sleep. Now, as an attendant, you're probably reading this, and he might be asking you, just as he asked the attendant. You read, this is something that happened, and the king would say, what did we do for him? And the king, the attendant would say, well, this is what you did. You rewarded him for this thing. Or if it was somebody who did something wrong, you punished him in these ways. And it just so happened that the servant was reminding the king of all the great things that he had done, how he had handsomely rewarded all those who were faithful to him. He read about the spoiled assassination attempt by Bikthana and Tiresh. And when the king asked, well, what did we do for Mordecai? What did we do for the one who saved my life? And the attendant said, nothing has been done for him. The king jolted awake because he realized that Mordecai had not been rewarded for his faithful deed in saving the king. Now, this sets up a really great need. As the king of the Persian empire, if somebody does something good for you, you want to reward that. Why? so that more people will do good stuff for you. right? It is this incentive for the kingdom to actually be for the safety of the king. In the same way, he would also immediately punish disobedience. So as soon as Bigdona and Tiresh were found to be guilty of the assassination attempt, they were thrown on the pike. They were killed. They were executed. So as soon as possible, the king needs to do something about Mordecai. He needs to reward him in some way. But as we've seen throughout the story, the king is unable. He is incapable of making a decision by himself. So he is going to ask for some help. And we see here now in the second point of our story, not only do we see a sleepless king, but the major point and the pivot point of the book of Esther is an honored servant, an honored servant. So let's look at verse four. The king said, who's in the court? Pause. At this point, it's probably dawn. Uh, The king hasn't been able to sleep through the night. He's been listening to the books of the Chronicles and he realizes that morning is coming. Dawn is coming. We got to do something about it. So, verse 4 the king said, Who is in the court? Now, Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there, standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So it just so happens that as the king is realizing that Mordecai, this Jew, has not been rewarded for his faithfulness, Haman comes really, really early to work. (laughs) Uh, Now, if you're the king, you recognize that the king has a huge agenda probably most of the day. There are a lot of people who want his attention There are a lot of meetings that he has to go to, a lot of decisions that he needs to make. And so Haman realizes, as somebody in high command, he realizes that in order to get ahead of all of that crowd, he needs to get there early. So Haman wants to get there, to beat the usual rush of palace business. So when the king asks, Haman is already waiting in the outer court for his audience with the king. Haman is ready to strike. Remember last week, he left this feast from Esther and the king feeling glorious. He was in high spirit spirits. He was happy, according to chapter 5, verse 9. But when he left the palace, Mordecai was sitting at the gate and continued to not give him honor or respect. And all of his happiness, all of his worldly joy was sapped up in a moment. He is ready to get the king's permission to kill Mordecai. All throughout the night, Haman has been supervising the construction of a 75-foot pole that he's going to execute Mordecai and hang him on. I mean, he has been thinking about this all night. All he needs is the green light from the throne. But he enters the king's presence. He gets invited to come in. And before he could say anything to the king, the king cuts him off. Listen to verse 6. Haman came in and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? Haman is immediately brought back to chapter 5, verse 9. He is joyful and glad of heart. Why? Because Haman is proud. And Haman immediately recognizes this question, not as a rhetorical flourish of the king to start the morning. Like, hey, if I were to reward somebody, how would I do that? He understands and interprets this question as, Haman, how am I going to reward you? How am I going to delight in you? What do I want? And the way we know this is because of verse 6, the second part. It says, And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? Haman is so focused on his own ego, his own prestige, his own status, that he can't for a moment even fathom that the king is not speaking about him. So here's Haman's chance to shoot for the moon. And what does Haman want more than anything? He does he want more than anything in the world. It actually isn't to kill Mordecai. Killing Mordecai is how he gets the thing that he wants more than anything in the world. What he wants more than anything in the world is prestige. What Haman wants, what Haman's idol is, and we learned this from last week, is not even to be significant. Like Haman isn't really concerned about being significant as much as he is concerned about being seen as significant. He wants people to look at him and notice. He wants people to look at him and revere him. He wants people to look at him and show him honor. So rather than a thoughtful pause or consideration in the presence of the king about the question that has been asked, out of the abundance of Haman's heart, his mouth spoke. Look at verse 7. And Haman said to the king, to the man whom the king delights to honor. Haman is on top of the world. And he is asking for everything he can get short of the throne itself. Mordecai's disrespect is not in his mind. He's not thinking about Mordecai anymore because ultimately he never really thinks about Mordecai. He never really thinks about anybody else other than himself. Here was his chance to be as close to the king as possible in terms of recognition. I mean, he's going to be paraded around by the king's most noble official wearing the king's robes on the horse that the king has ridden. And the most noble official is going to be proclaiming the glories of this one and says, this is what happens to the one that the king delights to honor. This is about as close as you can get to claiming the throne for yourself without actually doing it and being killed for treason. All of Haman's dreams are about to come true. I mean, this is like the breaking point for Haman. He has made it. He thought he made it when he got the king's ring, but now he's really about to be seen as glorious. His pride has led him to this place, and he puts himself in the blank space of the one that the king would delight to honor in. But let's see how it works out. Look at verse 10. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king. Delights to honor. Haman's dreams have instantly turned into his nightmare. Now, we're kind of thinking about this a little somber and a little serious. This is perhaps one of the funniest sections of the whole Bible, okay? I mean, here is a man who is larger than life, wants prestige more than anything in the world, is right at the precipice of receiving what he wants, and the king says, Actually... I want you to do that for your worst enemy. (laughs) And I want you to be the one, you're my most noble official. In other words, it's like the king says to Haman, you're the first loser. And so you need to be the one to parade this man around and proclaim his glory to the world. The wicked enemy of the people of God is so sure that he would be blessed, but an enormous reversal has taken place. Now, Christopher Ash, a uh, pastor and uh, scholar, helps us to see what happens with Mordecai in this text. In verse eleven, Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, "Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor." Christopher Ash makes the argument, and I think it's he's right. This is a this is a shadow of a kind of transfiguration. We know in the story of the gospels Jesus is the man of sorrows. He's acquainted with grief. We read about this and studied this last Wednesday night in uh, equipping groups with Isaiah 53, right? There's nothing about the Messiah, there's nothing about the suffering servant that would cause us to notice him. But it does say in Isaiah 52 verse 13 that that my servant will act wisely And he will be exalted. And we got a glimpse of Christ's exaltation in his earthly life on the Mount of Transfiguration to Peter, James, and John when he reveals himself to them in his glory. When he reveals himself to them as the King of Kings. And they bow down before him. And they recognize that this person who is humble, gentle, lowly in heart, not someone that most people would even notice, not so. Not after prestige, not after recognition from other people, that he was transfigured and transformed and we were able to see him for who he really is. And in the same way, Mordecai was this faithful follower of God in the sense that he was faithful to save the king. And his work of righteousness was not done so that he would receive a reward. If that were the case, We wouldn't have gone years and years and years without the king knowing that Mordecai didn't receive a reward. No, he did the right thing because it was the right thing to do. The world did not recognize Mordecai as a righteous man worthy of honor. But just for a moment, he is robed in splendor. He is visually stunning. He is riding the king's horse in power. And a proclamation accompanying him will be echoed All throughout the kingdom, and it was echoed when the father said, This is my son in whom I am well pleased. Haman, the one who reached for majesty and equality with the king through his own strength, his own pride, his own ego, has come up short. But the humble, righteous one who did not work for his own sake was glorified. This is the pivot that starts to unravel the book of Esther. It just so happened that the one who would be destroyed by evil was honored instead. And the one who thought they had power over the righteous one was then embarrassed and shamed and his destruction will be proclaimed. We see this in the third point of Esther chapter six, which is not just a sleepless king, not just a honored servant, but a sealed fate. A sealed fate. Look at verse 12. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate. But Haman hurried to his house, mourning, and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people," You will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. So Haman runs home to his counselors as he has done before. His plan to have Mordecai killed has been spoiled, and now Mordecai is the person of honor rather than the enemy of the king. Mordecai takes off his transfigured glory, he takes off his royal robes and gets off the royal horse and goes back to work. <laughs> He's not reveling in this. He's not making it more of a thing than it is. He goes back to work. Haman heads home in shame. And listen to how his advisors have changed their tune. First, they were the ones in Esther chapter 5 to say, hey, Haman, you should go to the king because I know that Mordecai, the Jew, is the one causing you all these problems. So just go to the king, you have his ear, and ask for him to be executed and you kill him on a 75-foot pole. But now they say, ooh, if Mordecai is a Jew, it ain't looking good, Haman. If if the one who has caused you all of this drama and all of this heartache and all the shame is of the Jewish people, you don't stand a chance, actually. You will fall before him. Now, they, they knew the previous night that Mordecai was a Jew. I mean, that's what Haman said. All this means nothing to me. All of my prestige, all of my status, all of my sons. It means nothing to me as long as Mordecai, the Jew, is still sitting at the king's gate. It's not like this is new information. But now they've changed their tune. Suddenly his counselors have some theological insight that they did not have the night before. Maybe they realize that the people of God, Israel, have been unusually resilient and have been delivered in a variety of ways before. Like maybe they were just were thinking about it over the day and they said, man, you know, now that I think about it, if Mordecai's a Jew. I mean, we know a little bit about Jewish history. They've been in some crazy circumstances before and yet have never been destroyed. Maybe they just think that Mordecai will have the king's ear now as the honored servant. That he now has a position of influence and authority that Haman even doesn't have. Either way, they spoke more than they knew. These, these counselors were speaking prophetically, even though they didn't know that they were. The tables had indeed turned. Deliverance was coming for God's people, and it could not be stopped. You know, hindsight is usually 20 20, and now Haman's counselors realize by looking at the writing on the wall, so to speak, that this has been the case the whole time. I mean, Haman has been planning and prodding and uh, strategizing to try to destroy the people of God. But if if it's the Jews that he's after, I don't think he's going to be successful. He will fall before them. Now, this is an opportunity for Haman. His idol of prestige has been exposed yet again and found completely dissatisfying. I mean, his idol has been ripped from his heart. (coughs) He thought that he was going to receive prestige and yet he found shame. Seeking the praise of people, he has found out will never lead to real satisfaction. And as we studied two weeks ago in Psalm 1 and 2, the nations may rage and plot against the king and his anointed, but God sits in the heavens and laughs. He will not be stopped even by the powers of the world. Whoever tries to plot against him and his anointed will always come up short. Haman had a choice. He could bow down, as Psalm 2 says, kiss the sun and not be destroyed. He could recognize that that Yahweh is the true God, that he is worthy of worship, that he is faithful to his promise and faithful to his people, but his time for consideration was cut short. Look at verse 14. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. Haman is off to the feast. Time is up for him. So as we conclude this chapter and think just for a moment about application to our own lives, we immediately should be struck with God's providence playing out for His glory and for the good of His people. It's something we see over and over and over again, but it's an application that bears repeating because over and over and over again, we miss it. Romans 8.28 really is a verse that that we can trust. That for those who love God, all things work together for good. Those who are called according to His purpose. That He really is working together all things that take place for good. In spite of what seems like an increasingly hostile world towards the church, Jesus has made it clear to the disciples and to us that the gates of hell will never prevail against us. Second, we notice that seemingly insignificant things are used mightily by God. I mean, all of this is hanging on, it's hinging on the fact that one night the king just could not sleep. And that servant just so happened to read of all of the things that the king has done about Mordecai. So yes, we plan and think hard and we press into the word and obey his commands. But students, we are utterly dependent on God to work. We are completely dependent for God to bring about his purposes. We want to walk alongside Him in those purposes. We want to walk in the works that He has prepared for us beforehand according to Ephesians 2. But at the end of the day, this is Philippians 2, Paul says to work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you to will and to work. God is the one in control. God is the one doing things behind the scenes, things that we don't notice to bring about His purposes. Third, we must ask ourselves what kind of counselors we are to ourselves and to others. You know, these counselors met with Haman twice, his wife and his friends. And first, they gave gave him really bad information. They gave him really bad counsel. And later, when they remembered some key information, they said something a little bit more true. How often do we fail? to see God's work all around us? Or how often are we quick to give counsel or advice only to be missing key information that would change what we say? Students, we need wisdom. We need wisdom for our own lives. We need eyes to see for our own sake and for others around us. God, help us to have these things by His grace that we don't think that we just have some kind of objective Knowledge of the world, but instead we realize we are in desperate need of wisdom. God, we need your insight. We need your strength. We need your guidance. We need your leadership in our lives. Fourth, we need to see a real warning here in this text. And that is everyone, everyone will bow before the Lord. The righteous, will bow in joy and splendor it will be a delight the wicked will bow in shame when we studied psalm 1 two weeks ago you read that they will not the wicked will not stand in the congregation of the righteous right the way of the righteous god knows but the way of the wicked will perish and so this warning is for us to repent and that we really can repent even right now and turn back or turn for the first time to the Lord of grace. You may think like Haman, you have committed some kind of heinous sin or you've committed too much sin or you're damaged goods, that your judgment is sealed, that there's no hope for you. But listen to Ian Duguid talking about this text. He says, in Christ, the promised Holy Spirit descends on a new people made up of Jews and Gentiles so that they might receive together all the blessings that God has planned for his people. In Christ, there is hope even for former Haman's, those whose lives have been lived in enmity to God and his people. Like That's us. Like In certain ways, we we all were Haman because in certain ways, we all had at the The sender of our heart, the seated on the throne of our souls was not the Lord, it was us. And we were about prestige. We were about our own recognition. We were about our own status. And for some of us, we still are. If we could somehow peel back and look into your soul, who would be seated on the throne of your heart? It's, It's you, not God. Haman was whisked off to a banquet that we will find leads to his ultimate demise. But for us, it is not too late. So I am pleading with you from the book of Esther to be reconciled to this king of glory. Don't follow Haman's path of idolatry and pride and say, if I could just go even deeper into my delusion, even deeper into my sin, I will ultimately get the thing that I want. It is never going to happen. But if you come to Jesus, you will find rescue and redemption. If you come to Jesus, the King will look at you and say, righteous, innocent, blessed. Not guilty. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the good news of the gospel. We see even in a text like Esther 6, your providential hand working out all things for your glory and for the good of those who love you, called according to your purpose. Lord, we see in Mordecai, this champion of righteousness in this text, in this instance, was recognized by the king, clothed in his own glory. And Lord, we know that that's, that's the life of Christ. One who was righteous for righteousness' sake, maligned, looked over. A glimpse of his glory was seen by some, but now He is clothed in righteousness. He is full of the splendor of your glory. And Father, in Christ, we too can be clothed in Christ's righteousness. We don't have to suffer the shame and embarrassment that our words that we try to use to promote our own status, our own ego, our own prestige, those things will turn to ash. But if our hope is in you, we will never be disappointed. So God, I pray that in the next few minutes, the conversations around our groups would be helpful, be profitable, that we would lean more deeply into your promise, your faithfulness, your goodness, that we would decrease so that you might increase. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.